I'm very happy now to welcome to the Radio Cafe, Kathy Wilson. She's a geomorphologist with Los Alamos National Laboratory, and we're here to talk about thawing permafrost in the Arctic. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thanks. It's great to be here. Good to have you here. Now, you study Arctic ice wedges. First of all, what is an ice wedge? Oh, well, an ice wedge is ice that forms underground in the Arctic. It forms when the soil gets so cold that the soil contracts and forms cracks. Those cracks form in the winter, and then in the spring when snow melts, water drains into those cracks and dribbles down into them and freezes immediately because the ground's still cold. And that happens year after year after year for hundreds to thousands of years and forms these very large wedges. They can be the size of a room underneath the soil surface or ground surface throughout lowland areas in the Arctic. Now, when you say the size of a room, you're describing a crack. You're describing like when you think of wedge, you think of something as triangular with a point at the bottom and a wider part at the top? Yes, typically. And in fact, um, over time, as you noted, they do keep growing at the top and the, the top of the ice wedge starts to push the ground up. And in flatter, wetter landscapes, the tops of those broad wedges, which can be many meters across, they form what we call rims in ice wedge polygon landscapes. So the wedges don't tend to be isolated, they tend to form in networks. And these ice wedges then form a network of a polygonal landscape that often has ponds in the center of each of these polygons. A polygonal landscape. Okay, 10th grade geometry, ladies and gentlemen. You're looking at the landscape, looking at it, let's say, from from the air. Yes. These big, not probably not triangles, but big sort of shapes that are bounded at the edge by straight lines. Yes, that's correct, where those straight lines tend to be at first when they're young and they're continuing to grow during colder periods rims or ridges and they form impoundments and they tend to be multi-sided sometimes four-sided but often five six-sided and so when we talk about how these things form you talk about the thawing and melting the I mean the cold creates cracks in the ground and then water when it's warm enough comes in and fills those cracks and then it freezes now when we talk about thawing in the permafrost perma means permanent. How long ago did these things form? I mean, they're not thawing and melting every winter and spring. That's correct. So they formed as far back as several hundred thousand years ago. And in some places, we still find these remnant, very old ice wedges when we see slumps or uh, cuts in riverbanks and and, uh, when we see erosion along a coastline. But they're, they're actually still forming, and they form under the current climate conditions in the Arctic and in the high Arctic around, say, places like Barrow, Alaska. The new ones that form, they will have smaller wedges of ice, and over time, they might continue to grow. Now, the problem is it's getting warmer, so they're unlikely to stay stable and continue to develop into these massive structures that had developed in the past. Let's talk about the geography that you're referring to here. We think of 
our globe. And then at the top of the globe, there's this sort of vaguely circular landmass. Are we talking about everything from the North Pole to the Arctic Circle? Well, normally when we do talk about the Arctic, we mean everything that is above about 66 degrees latitude, that is the defined as the Arctic Circle. And across that area, you typically find the ice wedge polygon landscapes in the flatter wetland environments or valley bottoms in the landscapes or across the area that surrounds the Arctic Ocean in Alaska, it's called the Coastal Plain, that's flatter, flatter landscape, very moist. Now, what is the importance of these ice wedges to you, to scientists? Well, it turns out that permafrost in general covers about 24% of the northern hemisphere landmass. So that's a lot of frozen ground. And like you said, it has a sense of being permanent, but the technical definition is that it's been frozen for two or more years. But Did you just say the northern hemisphere landmass? Yes. So including Mexico, well, if the you, United States, yes. Yeah, so if you take Europe, if, Russia, right, right. If you take all of the northern hemisphere landmass, twenty-four percent of it is covered by permafrost or oh Im- impacted by permafrost. Yes. Yeah, so it's a it's a very large area, and we care about it because permafrost over thousands of years has been a sink for atmospheric CO two, a greenhouse gas that's been taken up by Arctic vegetation every year during the summer. And then that vegetation dies off pretty quickly in the autumn. At that time, things get cold really fast. And unlike in temperate landscapes where the carbon can decompose on the soil surface for a month or so. Wait, wait, wait. How can carbon decompose? It's an element. Well, that's a good question. And I actually mean the organic matter that contains carbon, so that's correct. So dead leaves, twigs, any kind of previously living um, plants, plants, when they die off and, and fall to the ground, where it's warmer, a lot of it decomposes before the winter, but in the Arctic, uh, it doesn't have much time to decompose. And then because of the freeze-thaw action in the soils in the Arctic, a lot of churning happens, and that organic matter slowly over hundreds of years gets worked down into the lower soil profile. And then as it gets near the permafrost boundary, which is depends how deep that is, whether you're in the northern Arctic or southern Arctic, it starts to freeze. And it's gotten stored over hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of years. So there's a lot of organic carbon stored in permafrost in the Arctic. Now, what are summers like in the Arctic right now? It varies a lot. So when I'm working up in Barrow, Alaska, which is right on the Arctic Ocean, it can be cool to chilly. Some days it's warm and pleasant. And on those warm days, we tend to get a lot of mosquitoes. But otherwise, it's um, you're wearing your jacket and your uh, rain pants and waders because it's wet. But I mean, so you're having plants grow at that time of year. Yes. 
And so that carbon cycle is active. It's not something that you're looking at from thousands of years ago. That's correct. So the carbon cycle is ongoing. Every summer, the plants grow quite vigorously because it's light for so long. And in fact, actually, one of the important things to note is that permafrost is always 30, 40, 50 centimeters down below the surface because every summer, the soil column thaws, slowly thaws through the summer. The roots and microbes in the soil become active. Those microbes decompose the organic plant matter that's in the thaw zone. So every summer, there are emissions of either CO2 or methane that come out of the soils in the Arctic, as they do in other parts of the world. Then in the winter, the microbes go dormant again, the soil freezes up, and that carbon cycle of the uptake of carbon through the leaves in the plants, the sequestration of carbon into the soil column through roots, and the decomposition of carbon plant matter through microbial and, and other biotic processes in the soil column occur. Now, what kind of plants are we talking about? I remember I went once to Alaska many years ago and went hiking and looked at the ground and it was like New England foliage in miniature. It is like that. It can be very colorful, actually, especially during the autumn, uh, like anywhere. But they tend to be sedges in the wetter places, grasses, shrubs. Up in the northern Arctic, they're very miniature shrubs. You can hardly tell that they're shrubs, and they lay close to the ground. But as you go further south, the shrubs get taller, you get a greater variety of shrubs and different types of grasses, including these tussocky formations of grasses that are very difficult to walk in. <laughs> but a, a beautiful diversity. And in fact, down in the Seward Peninsula near Nome, where we have another field site, during the fall it's a, it's a, or late summer, it's a wonderful time to be working because just about every step you take, you can grab a handful of wild blueberries or wild salmon berries as you're doing your field work. So we are starting to get, and I hope our audience can at least visualize this a little bit, a sense of, I mean, this is a vast landscape you're talking about, a quarter of the landmass of the Northern Hemisphere, and extremely varied mountains and valleys and some part of it is probably always white and some part of it is a home for all kinds of creatures not just plants but animals of many kinds what is happening now i mean when we read about climate change one of the things that we read about warming is that it's more extreme at the poles of the planet what are you seeing well observations that are taken globally are indicating that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the globe. And that is impacting the permafrost across the Arctic, and it impacts it in different ways. Why is it warming more than other places? That's a good question. I, I think that, well, it's called polar amplification, but I don't actually know what the scientific rationale for why it's getting warmer there faster. But meanwhile, there's a melting of the permafrost. And when we talk about that soil column, we're not talking about 
the top, which thaws and freezes and thaws and freezes according to the seasons, and Lord knows they've got a lot of sun up there in the summer and like nothing in the winter, can only imagine what that's like. Have you been there during the high seasons of both the both solstices? No, I haven't. I, I would love to be there during the winter. I have been there when it has been quite dark during the early afternoon, but, um, and of course I have been there in the summer when it's, it's light all night and we put tinfoil up on the windows so that we can sleep. Right, but. right. <laughs> but. but we're talking about not the surface of the soil, but the deeper parts that are always frozen. Yes. And that have been sequestering the carbon stored in plant matter for what, thousands of years? Thousands of years. Thousands of years. Yes. That is starting to thaw. Hang on just one second. Let's go back thousands of years. What was the climate like when that deep layer, I mean, was there a point where it was a lot warmer there? Well, so we typically talk about, uh, well, there have been multiple periods of glaciation and interglacial periods, but we typically talk about the last glacial period and then the warming period after that, which we call the Holocene. And that's been going on for 10 to 12,000 years, the Holocene, the post-glacial period. So a lot of the freezing and sequestration or, or cold temperatures and sequestration of carbon that, have, that has been going on over the past 10,000 years has actually been a warmer period or a slowly warming period, but things have been heating up much faster than they ever have during that period of time. And so now we're seeing very dramatic rapid changes in the permafrost conditions. So what you do is you can go, you can measure what's happening below the surface and those temperatures are going up. Yes, they are. And in fact, there've been a number of researchers, one, one of our collaborators at University of Alaska Fairbanks, Vladimir Romanovsky, he has been carrying out circumpolar permafrost temperature measurements for at least a couple of decades now. And those are showing trends of warming permafrost. But we also see trends in the depth to which soil thaws every summer. And that's what starts to really change what's happening on the surface of, of the Arctic landscape. And the reason for that is when these ice wedges form, they form in equilibrium with a long-term temperature and thaw depth. So let's say for the past 100, 200 years, on average, the soil has been thawing in a place like Barrow, Alaska to about 35 centimeters deep. And so any ice wedges that have formed there, the surface of those ice wedges sit at about 35 centimeters below the surface or 40 centimeters below the surface. Now it still is on average minus 14 degrees C in Barrow. That's the average annual temperature. That's really cold. It is. And and so you'd kind of, you'd wonder, well, how can anything be degrading? But it's this equilibrium. It's the fact that any change in the temperature, especially warming, can drive that thaw depth to go deeper than it used to be. And now it's often, sometimes for a decade at a time or three or four years at a time, going 
several centimeters to tens of centimeters deeper, and that then melts out the ice. Once that ice is melted, the ice top of the ice wedge is melted out, the ground that's sitting on top of it that was propped up by that wedge collapses, and that changes then the surface structure of the landscape. And those structures that used to be the rims that formed the ring or the edge of the bathtub of, of the polygon, so to speak, that collapses, that can become a trough and drain water out of the landscape. So we can have multiple things start to happen. The ice wedges melt, the landscape starts to deform, that deformation can cause what previously looked like a lush wetland landscape that supported a sedge, a rich sedge, grass kind of ecosystem. That can be drained quickly and start to dry out. And that changes then the types of microbes that live in the soil, the types of vegetation in the landscape, and also the wildlife that can be supported by it. So any of those small changes, just a, a little bit of melting on the, of the ice wedge can start to really dramatically change the landscape surface and its ecosystems. Now, another thing that happens is that methane is released. What is the process by which that happens and how much more methane are we talking about? So in the permafrost landscapes, the estimate of amount of organic carbon that's frozen is about 1,700 gigatons. And a gigaton's hard to kind of get your head around, but it is more than the total amount of organic carbon in all the vegetation on Earth. So if you think of all the living green matter on Earth, what's stored as organic matter in this frozen carbon is greater than that amount. So when you start to thaw that stored frozen carbon, you can emit one of two gases. Methane, if the environment is wet and soggy and saturated, or CO2, if it's drier, or even if the surface is drier. So you can produce methane in the wet subsurface, and as it moves up through the soil column, if it gets to a drier part of the soil column, then uh, different types of microbes will start to eat the methane and convert it into CO2. So the wetter parts of the landscape emit methane and the drier parts of the landscape emit CO2. And so any change in where that water is standing will change the balance between methane and CO2 in the landscape. Meanwhile, both of them, potent greenhouse gases, methane, a more potent greenhouse gas, but not as long-lived. Exactly. Exactly. So they're both an issue. If we have a lot of drying of the Arctic and our global climate models predict an overall drying of the Arctic, we're likely to start to shift more toward CO2 emissions from these currently uh, methane perhaps in some environments that are really wetland environments, methane producing areas. And so we'll have more long-lived gas, less of the methane, but it's not clear how much of either of those gases will be produced over time or how fast they will be produced. 
and which form it will be, whether it will be methane or CO2. There's, there's really very high uncertainty and lack of knowledge at this stage in, in answering those questions. Either way, it's a huge problem for warming if we are trying to stay within the 350 parts per million range. That's correct. So that's why the community of climate scientists care about what's happening up in the terrestrial Arctic. Normally when we think about the Arctic and how the rapid warming up there is impacting it, we think about melting sea ice and the melting of the Greenland ice sheet and, and things like that. We don't think as much about the fact that permafrost is a really big player in this too, especially because as permafrost thaws and these uh, emissions occur through the decomposition of the previously frozen plant matter. Uh, we could have a lot of new CO2 and methane pumped back into the atmosphere and that will increase the warming potential of the atmosphere. Increase it by a lot. It could increase it significantly. And you know, some of the fastest estimates of how much emissions may occur out of permafrost, they're still small. They're on the order of maybe 5 to 10% of human emissions, but that is still a lot, and it's enough to really make a difference in terms of how rapidly the Earth will warm. What is the role of scientists like you in this whole conversation? I mean, you are studying this stuff to what end? I mean, science doesn't have to always have an end. You study stuff to understand it. But what's your own perspective? Well, the, the work that I'm doing is a project that's funded by the Department of Energy's Office of Science. And being at Los Alamos National Lab, a lot of our funding and work is supported by the Department of, of Energy. Their interest is understanding what is the impact of the U.S. energy use and portfolio on the climate system. They have a large effort in developing the state-of-the-art global climate model so that they can look at the interactions of the human emissions and human energy use with the natural system. And so how do those emissions into the atmosphere drive changes in the radiation balance that then impact heat in the ocean, changes to our vegetation systems across the earth, changes in sea ice, ice sheets, etc. So our role is to help them improve the representation of the Arctic ecosystem as, as we were talking about, 24% of the Northern Hemisphere landmass is a permafrost landscape. As that thaws and changes and the carbon is made available to decomposition, how will that impact the climate system? So our role is to improve the representation of the terrestrial Arctic in these global climate models, those models that get run uh, every five years for the big IPCC reports on where the earth is going in terms of our impact on climate and how climate will change into the future. All of what you're talking about is concerning, to say the least, on many levels. I mean, one of them is the carbon impact, which people are concerned about anyway, because it's so unknown 
but potentially huge. That's right. That's right. But there, there are other impacts, too. The, one of the impacts that people really care about up there, especially the land managers, is the impact on wildlife. And, um, and of course, that extends to the native communities up there. But if you think about these uh, vast tracts of landscape in the Arctic that are flooded in the spring after snowmelt, um, especially these big polygon wetland areas. Those are the breeding grounds for all kinds of species of shorebirds. One spring when I was measuring snowbelt up there, the tundra was just alive with thousands of ducks and terns and plovers and, uh, and all kinds of birds that use the high points in the landscape, these rims that form over the ice wedges as their nesting sites, and then they get their food in the ponds, the polygon ponds that form, that just start teeming with larvae and, and, and other little things that they, they eat. And so there is a big concern about what will this mean, not just for the carbon cycle and emissions to the atmosphere, but what will it mean for wildlife diversity and you know, the survival of these species that use the Arctic as breeding grounds. When the water drains in the way that you were talking about, where does it go? Well, it it typically uh, moves downslope into streams or rivers that exist, but basically it's um, we're, we're making connections between what was a wetland to rivers that previously existed, but shortcutting or short-circuiting the wetland so that it doesn't impound the water anymore. What is it like for you as a scientist to be up in the Arctic? I mean, you have presumably spent a lot of your time there. It's really fantastic. It's It just makes you feel so, first of all, lucky to have a job that allows you to work in these very wild beautiful environments. In the winter, uh, well, I haven't been there in the dead of winter, but in the early spring, it can be challenging with 40 mile an hour winds and, you know, you're bundled up and trying to, you know, write notes in your notebook with your your hands barely able to move. But on the other hand, it it is just spectacular in terms of the diversity of plants, animals, the culture, being able to interact with the local uh, people who live there, just a really remarkable experience. It always astounds me. And I, I can imagine, I can understand how there's a lot of biodiversity in even the desert environment in which we live, and certainly in the tropics and in the uh, Midwest and so on, but that there's so much biodiversity in a place whose average temperature is minus 14 Celsius. It's just mind-boggling. It, it is mind-boggling, and but yet when you're up there in the summer especially, and you realize that, wow, it is light all day and all night, and you, you've got to put foil on the windows so that you can sleep at night, that then gives you a sense of how intense the life cycle can be up there. What are your hopes for the future of that area? I mean, that 
human beings can figure out how to reverse the changes that we're making or? I doubt that we'll be able to actually reverse what has, has happened in terms of actually engineering reversals. Our best hope for preserving the Arctic is to change the way we think about how we use energy. And as if we can reduce our emissions, that's our best hope for preserving the Arctic. Kathy Wilson is a geomorphologist with Los Alamos National Laboratory. She's head of the Atmosphere, Climate, and Ecosystem team in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Division. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it was great. Thanks so much. This program originally aired on KSFR Santa Fe Public Radio.